0: Welcome to the Missing Chapter Podcast, where you will hear some of the least known, obscure, and entertaining stories the history textbooks left out, starring Phil Horander and Phil Schaaf. Garibaldi Street in the city of Buenos Aires in Argentina is a quiet, unassuming street located in the San Fernando section of the capital city. It was so on the day of May 11th in 1960 as well. Only a scattering of people dotted the road in the afternoon heat, as most residents had not yet returned from their jobs. Buses were beginning to make their late-day stops, depositing people anxious to be home. Two men tinkered with their temperamental engine under the hood of their car on the left-hand side of Garibaldi Street. 30 yards behind them, another man changed his oil, wiping his hands on a dirty rag. A good Samaritan on a bicycle stopped and offered his assistance to the men trying to fix their engine, but was surprised when they firmly rejected his offer. He continued along his way. At five after eight, the third transit bus pulled up, put on its flashers, dropped its hydraulics, and opened its doors. A small-framed balding man stepped onto the sidewalk from the bus and began walking to his house. Ricardo Clement, was a metal worker at the local Mercedes-Benz plant and was tired from a long day of work and was anxious to be home. Clement was confronted by a man who muttered to him under his breath, Un momento, señor. Just a moment in broken Spanish. Clement reluctantly acknowledged him just as the man pounced on him. The men working on their engine sprang from underneath their hood and helped subdue him. The man changing his oil grabbed Clement and threw him forcefully into his car. Clement's hands and feet were tied, he was bound and gagged, goggles placed over his eyes so that he couldn't see as the car sped away. Garibaldi Street in the city of Buenos Aires in Argentina is a quiet, unassuming street. On the evening of May 11th, 1960, it witnessed history. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on a whim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from, like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at wyndhamhotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Hi, and welcome to the Missing Chapter podcast with Phil Hornder and Phil Schaff. As always, we appreciate you taking time out of your day and out of your schedule to listen to our story. We're excited to bring it to you today. Phil, you brewed the today's coffee. What'd you go with? We went old school today. One of our first episodes we had with you guys, uh, we brewed the Utica
1: Roasting's Peanut Butter Cup. And we went back to that today. And we actually topped it off with Utica Roasting's Bourbon Barrel. So a little mixture today. And let me tell you that the smell, the aroma throughout the classroom... And throughout the
0: hallways, is pretty enticing. Yeah, it is really good. And today's a part one of two-part series uh, that we're gonna bring you. Um, I'm really excited. The the more research I did on this, it became apparent that it was gonna have to be two parts. Mm -hmm. And and I think you guys will understand that as we go through this today and the details that are working its way into this episode. Phil, I'm gonna ask you a hypothetical question uh, before I get to the research and the story for today. Okay. Hypothetical question, in 2021, OK, and we'll take the fact that that you're a married man with a beautiful family out of the equation. If you were forced to go into hiding more than just off the grid, OK, if you were forced to go into hiding so that no one could find you, how difficult or what factors do you think would play a role in that scenario? Wow, that's a pretty challenging question. I would say in, in
1: 2021, it would actually be pretty difficult to do that uh, with technology the way it is. Um, you know, family aside. Boy, that, I think that'd be pretty tough to do. I got to be honest. Yeah,
0: I would have to agree. Probably easier, would you say, in the 1940s, 1950s I because of technology? Yes, I would okay. say. But still probably pretty difficult. Right. Okay. Keep that in the back of your mind as we go through today's story, okay? The Nazi Holocaust conducted during the Second World War claimed the lives of an estimated 6 million Jews mm-hmm. and an additional 5 million minorities and political opponents. The Holocaust continues to be one of the worst civil rights abuses and examples of genocide in modern history. And the manner in which the perpetrators were dealt with in its aftermath, all right, specifically with the Nuremberg trials, really set the precedent for future war crimes abuses. Let's go back even further. In 1934, prior to World War II, one year after Adolf Hitler's appointment as German Chancellor, Adolf Eichmann was assigned to the Jewish portion of the security services of the SS. And he worked closely with Hitler in the development, the planning, the implementation of the Nazi final solution operation. Really that transition from Jews maybe being a a source of cheap labor for the Nazis to we're going to try and mass murder as many as we can in a a short period of time. Eichmann orchestrated the deportation of German Jews into ghettos. He oversaw the construction of the concentration camps throughout Europe. And he reportedly took great pride in the role he was playing for the Fuhrer. After World War II, a number of high-ranking Nazi officials were captured and put on trial in Nuremberg. Others were able to escape and avoid repercussions of their actions entirely. The passport issued to Adolf Eichmann as he fled Europe after World War II was issued by the International Committee of the Red Cross on June 1, 1950. It was discovered, oddly enough, by a graduate student at the University of San Martin who was researching Eichmann's wife, Veronica Leibel, in Hmm. 2007. And the name on the passport read, Ricardo Clement. Okay. And claims that he was a technician born in Balzano, Italy. Interesting. So so you're getting an idea of how he, a, a rather big person within the Nazi party, within the SS, within the Holocaust was able to escape. Wow. And the more research I did, it's really not hard to believe, I think, in the chaos that kind of gripped Europe after World War II and the realization of just how bad the Holocaust was. For someone to maybe alter their identity, their physical appearance, doctor some papers, you know, probably not many people in the Red Cross knew who he was or could identify him physically for that matter.
1: And I think you bring up a good point because as you were talking about this, I said, I, I was kind of thinking to myself, in and amongst the chaos, would it be easier to pull something like this off? Right. You know, if, if, if you were in peacetime and someone like this changed their identity and that kind of thing, I, I could probably see, you know, someone noticing some sort of, I don't know, anomaly taking place. But with all the chaos, I think it could probably be
0: pulled off right. a little and, bit easier. And in conjunction with the chaos, I think really one of two groups would probably notice and be able to identify Eichmann. You would have the the people who were essentially victims of his, right, who probably weren't in a position to identify him, and then the other Nazi officials who wouldn't want to put themselves in that position either because that would self-incriminate them. That's true. Yeah, that's a good point. So, it, it you know, the idea that you could be such a high-profile SS officer and be able to escape under these conditions, I think if you stop and think, it's a little bit more realistic than than you might originally, you know, have kind of uh, come up with your head. Yeah,
1: I would have to agree with that, yeah.
0: Yeah, so Eichmann would take refuge in Argentina in 1950 and subsequently live in the quiet town of Buenos Aires near San Fernando for nearly three years, where he worked in a metal fabrication factory. In 1950, he was the lone member of the family in Argentina. His wife and two children wouldn't arrive in South America until mid-1952. And eventually, Eichmann would relocate to the province of Tucumán, where he he helped with state contracts to help modernize the province's water uh, administration. A job that was secured for him by then-President Juan Perón, a known Nazi sympathizer. Wow. When his wife and children met up with him in 1952, he enrolled his children in a German school known for openly promoting anti-Semitism and pro-Nazi propaganda under the name Eichmann, which would suggest that he he was much more comfortable at this point with his background, who he was, and the support that the Argentinian government was giving him.
1: Okay, yeah, that would make sense.
0: Yeah. You know, No alias. and Right, yeah, we're kind of surprised open. by that, actually. Yeah. Right. In April of 1953, the firm that he was working for declared bankruptcy, forcing the Eichmann family back to Buenos Aires, where he was hired by Mercedes-Benz, and returned to his alias at this time, Ricardo Clement. Wow. So it's kind of going back and forth, depending upon which city he's located in. So is there any, and maybe you're going to get into this, so I don't want to jump the gun, but is there...
1: Is there any reason why he was jumping back and forth between the two?
0: It's job availability, and I think it's just him kind of feeling out how secure his environment is. Okay, yeah. Um, if he's working for a government position or something that was, you know, he he got that position because of the government support, and the government in Argentina at, at this point was very pro-Nazi, I mean, openly about right. it. Yeah. I think he felt a little bit more comfortable. And is there a reason why he chose that alias? Not that I could find because I know,
1: I know one of the things we've talked about with our our students is the uh, the museum in Washington D.C., which is just it's phenomenal, uh, the Espionage Museum. Right. And once you walk in, you have to uh, choose an alias mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. become an alter ego per se. Right. And I think this is, this really brings me back to that because you're kind of going in and out of character depending on where he's located. Right. So I, I'm always I'm I'm always thinking to myself, Have ever had to do that, you know, <laughs> in like a Cold War era kind of style? Uh, time period would would I fumble and slip up and call myself my real name? You know that kind of thing always enters my mind.
0: It had to be difficult on a certain level to remember. Am I going by the alias? Right. Am I safe to be going by my my original name? And you know, that might be something you know interesting. Certainly interesting to uh, to follow up on and maybe share in a few future episodes. Sure. That would be good. At this point, it would seem no one heard from him for several years until the autumn of 1957. When Walter Aton at the Israeli Foreign Ministry received a call from a Fritz Bauer, the public prosecutor for the province of Hesse, Germany, and Bauer informed Aiton that Eichmann was alive and well and residing in Argentina. Aiton immediately contacted Isser Harel, the head of a group called Mossad, who we're going to hear a lot about. And Mossad is really the national intelligence agency of Israel; it's the equivalent to the CIA in the United yep. States. They're responsible for intelligence collection, covert operations, and any counterterrorism for Israel. And in 1957, they were committed to hunting escaped Nazis and bringing them to justice. So a pretty reputable organization, I would say. Yeah. And they were good at what they did. Right. Harold wasn't up to speed really on who exactly Eichmann was. So he spent a night reading Eichmann's uh, dossier. Mm -hmm. And I found this very, very interesting that by his own admission, and he almost felt guilty. He didn't know who, who Adolf Eichmann was or what role, to what role he played during the Holocaust. And he goes into great depth. I'm gonna share a quote with you here in a minute, but he, he goes into great depth talking about the emotions he felt as he was reading Eichmann's work and finding out more about him. You know, as Harold writes in his own book entitled The House of Garibaldi Street, he said, quote, I didn't know with what morbid zeal Eichmann had pursued his murderous work or how he went into the fray to destroy one miserable Jew with the same ardor he devoted to the annihilation of an entire community. And he says, really, it wasn't just the recounting of what Eichmann did, his job during this, but it was the enjoyment, the pride he took in it that really hit home. Yeah. And, And from here, it was at this point. That Harold knew that Adolf Eichmann must be found, it it must be found, brought to justice, and ultimately punished.
1: And do you think that there was maybe because he didn't know a lot about it? Was there was there almost like I um, I don't know, a remorse that he he didn't know more? Like this powerful guy, he really he probably thought, "Gosh, I, I should know more about this guy. Why don't I?" Right. So
0: someone within Mossad, I yeah. mean, they're part of their. Part of their role in nineteen fifty in the nineteen fifties is to do just that: locate Nazi crimi- criminals. And this, this is a intel. big fish, right? Yeah. Right. You know, and and he talks about really his motivation was twofold. He 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 said that his victims demanded that Eichmann be found. He demand they demanded that Eichmann be found, and as he put it, justice and morality demanded it. So as he's reading that, he's he is probably even more so.
1: More, more motivated than he ever was prior to learning this right. guy's name. Sorry. And he, he yeah. said
0: it's almost the beginning of the obsession for him. Interesting. This was the starting point. So from here, Harrell asked Israeli Prime Minister David Ben-Gurion for the green light, which Ben-Gurion certainly did. Harold decided that it was preferable to capture Eichmann rather than assassinate him. He would be brought to Israel. He'd stand trial before the very people that he tried to murder.
1: Oh my goodness.
0: And Harold knew that it wasn't going to be easy. He was undoubtedly living under an alias and he was living within a country that was harboring and abetting no Nazis. So there were not many leads in the beginning. They just knew again that he was in Argentina. Um, So any leads that they did have were, were rather slim. He'd used the Eichmann name on and off during his time in Argentina. And at one point, his son had boasted openly about his father's past and his hatred towards Jews. Many of these, quote unquote, leads, in fact, really led nowhere. For the first few months, they, they, Mossad hit wall after wall after wall. Um, it did confirm, however, that Eichmann was most likely living somewhere in Argentina. And from the outset, the investigation moved slowly, delicately, deliberately. Mm-hmm. All right? And Harrow wrote, quote, the investigators could not risk the danger That their prey would learn he was being followed. Even more difficult was the necessity of identifying their man beyond the slightest doubt. The only thing worse than losing the real Eichmann would be capturing the wrong one. Oh, that's a great quote. Oh my goodness. And Eichmann had carefully covered his tracks. He destroyed all paperwork that had existed on his previous life. He'd removed the tattoo from underneath his left armpit that all SS men were identified by. And the only pictures Mossad had were blurry ones and no fingerprints existed. So again, in the nineteen fifties, Phil, if you're if you're saying this is the task in 2021, I think you know investigators would have a difficult time, at least getting started. But in the 1950s, because of technology and the evidence that they had, it's even more of a, a challenge. I would say so. And, and to, to even go as far as to remove a
1: tattoo, like how do you even go through that process? I don't know. And he must have had the mindset, obviously had the mindset knowing that he he's probably going to be tailed at some point mm-hmm. and any identifying factor
0: has to be removed. In the late night, in late 1959, the Israelis unearthed the name Ricardo Clement. The Mossad team began following this name in Argentina, in conjunction with information obtained from the Argentinian Jewish girl that had actually dated Eichmann's son and had gotten involved with him, not knowing her religious affiliation. She's the one that provided them with this idea that he was boasting about who he was and who his father was. So, Phil, it kind of dawned on
1: me as you were talking about this. It's really not Eichmann himself, but it's
0: Eichmann's son that really gives up his position. Right. You know, Eichmann had done a really good job and had gone through painstaking, you know, detail to cover his tracks. And the son's real, his arrogance and the fact that he's actually proud of who he is and, and what the family name means is really what's, what's going to plant the seed that Massad is looking for. And the fact that he's dating a girl unbeknownst to him happens to be Jewish. There, there's some nice, I don't know, I guess you can call it karma in yeah. all of this, oh, Yeah. Um, but things are starting to unfold. And, and that's all Massad really needed was that one piece of information. We knew it was Argentina, but where do we go from here? How can we narrow it down? That's a big country. But this information and, and the information that Eichmann's ex-girlfriend was able to provide Mossad with really started to pull back the veil on the investigation. This is what they'd been waiting on. Yep. It led them directly to a small, modest house on Garibaldi Street in the San Fernando section of Buenos Aires. She was able to show them directly where this boy lived And now they had to confirm her story and make sure that, you know, his father's the one that they've spent months kind of laying, laying out the, um, the, the trap for. So I'm just thinking in my head,
1: any like true crime story, any good episode of like law and order, you know, there's always that, there's always that moment that, that these investigators want to break through. Mm -hmm. This has got to be the breakthrough. Am I right?
0: It seems like it's the breakthrough. And I think a lot of, you know, those stories, there's a certain element of luck that's needed.
1: Yeah, without a and, doubt. And a
0: lot of patience and just waiting for someone. Even it's like we said, in this case, it's not Eichmann that makes the mistake, but somebody associated with him.
1: Because eventually human nature is we will make a mistake. Right. So Masada is just waiting and biding their time until until someone you know
0: slips up. Yeah. And this is their break. They began around the clock surveillance on the home, taking pictures of the house's set up. And the habits and routine of the balding, bespeckled man (laughs) who lived there with his family. A man that they were becoming more and more convinced was, in fact, the former Nazi and killer. But they still didn't have the proof they needed. The events of March 21st, 1960 provided the insurance they were looking for. Mossad agents observed Clement walk off the bus toward his home with a bouquet of flowers. His wife greeted him at the door and he presented her with the flowers. The children were dressed up for a special occasion and a large party ensued. March 21st, agents knew. What did uh, this all mean? This was Eichmann's silver wedding anniversary. Oh my gosh. So it confirmed who he was. They knew where he lived. They're starting to learn his habits and his routine. And now they can kind of implement part two of this. How are we going to go after catching him? That's unbelievable. So he
1: he doesn't know that he's being... Followed, correct. At any given moment, I mean, he's really just being marked. They're trying to find out his habits. They're right. trying to find out his tendencies, and this is the this is the
0: moment. He doesn't know, and Argentina doesn't know that anything like this is going on within their country's borders either. I mean, hats off to Mossad too for not right. tipping
1: their hand as well and not you know being noticed or being caught. That's pretty incredible, right? And after the break, we'll
0: talk about what enabled this team to work so well undercover and what motivated the team members not to be the ones to ruin that surprise. W. Edwards Deming once wrote, the world is drowning in information, but slow in acquisition of knowledge. Help spread information by following us on Instagram
1: and liking us on Facebook today. Thank you for listening to the Missing Chapter podcast with us, Phil Schaff and Phil Horrender. All right, Phil, I got to tell you, this is the kind of episode where a lot of questions yet, uh, but still there's so many elements, a variety of elements that go into this this story. So right before break, you told us something that, that you're leading into, and I I have, I have a couple of inklings of where this story could be headed, but I'm really excited for the second half. So here's my question for you. When you are that patient to wait and wait and wait, ready to pounce to get this guy, You must have just an an endless amount of patience and reserves to wait for that specific moment. All right. So my question, Phil, is if you are waiting and being this patient as a team, is there another element of motivation beyond just wanting justice Mm -hmm. that is enticing them
0: to wait even longer? Yeah, I think that's a good point, Phil. And one of the things I had to remind myself as I did this, you're only 15 years removed from World War II and the end of the the war and the Holocaust and the realization of just how bad the camps were and the atrocities that came out during the Nuremberg trials. 15 years is really, it's not that long in the scope of history. And these people who are are implementing and putting this plan into place are all directly affected uh, by what the Nazis had done. And I think over and over again in my research, they wanted to do this right. They wanted to do this right for the victims. They wanted to make sure that things were done properly um, later on when they were scrutinized by various governments and various organizations. And I think it's a, really a direct result of Isser Harrell, the guy who, who's kind of heading this up. I think he's he's a very smart, articulate, and just um, detail-oriented person. And- yeah, I think if you blow your cover too soon, mm-hmm. then the whole operation
1: is is for naught. Right. So I just think, like you said, it, it, there's more motivation than just, hey, we got to get justice on these people. Everybody had a tie to this. So you have almost a personal element.
0: And up um, until this point, it's been very slow developing. It's almost yeah. like it, it's like a book where you say, well, you know, get through the first few chapters. It's going to be a little bit slow to develop. And then things pick up a little bit. You know, I think the Israelis were very, very prepared once they knew Argentina, once they narrowed it down to a country to put their intel on the ground and embed it amongst, you know, the Argentinian people. And then they had to sit and wait. And then the break came with Eichmann's son and, you know, boasting to his girlfriend and that leaking to intel. So I think a lot of it, I kind of think the way I feel about with, with this story is probably the way they felt as it was playing out. Yeah. Now the adrenaline's building. Things are starting to happen. There were probably moments where they thought, you know, this wasn't going to, you know, to kind of formulate as a plan. But we're at that point now where action is going to kind of override the waiting period. So now you're on the downhill slope of that roller coaster. Absolutely. Ride. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. And, and uh, Harrell has decided to travel to Argentina and oversee the capture of Eichmann personally. His team was assembled. They devised a plan nicknamed Operation Finale, and he left no detail to chance. They would capture Eichmann, and they would fly him back to Israel using forged documents. This was not an assassination trip. Wow. Right? They, they did that for a number of different reasons. I think it was very smart. They knew they were going to get a lot of backlash from the Argentinian government, okay. that this was being done within their borders, and they knew nothing about it. And I think they also wanted to make sure that he did stand trial and wasn't just, you know, in the eyes of many, murdered. Yeah, regardless exactly. of what he had done in his past. They were going to do this right. Each Israeli operative, and this kind of alludes to what you brought up, Phil, was handpicked by Harrell and had demonstrated their allegiance and dependability, dependability in various realms. Many were also motivated because of atrocities that had been carried out against family members by the Germans. Yeah, see, there, there you go. Because I don't think you know, anyone that's going to go through this, this type of,
1: I know I keep mentioning patience, but the mm-hmm. scrutiny, like you mentioned too, yeah. you know you're putting yourself out there. So you're going to have to endure you know, bullets from all angles.
0: Right. And they don't want to be the ones who are, who are personally responsible for a plan that's taken so long to formulate to fall apart at the last moment. Right. Uh, the man chosen to grab and overpower Eichmann had lost his sister and her three children at the hand of the Nazis, and he would finally be getting his opportunity to avenge their deaths to whatever extent he could. Although there were more than 30 members assembled for Operation Finale, and Harrell had said nothing was going to be left to chance. So to ensure all of the documents appeared authentic and to give you an idea the lengths that they were going, they even set up a fake travel agency in an unidentifiable European city. Okay. Yeah. And Harrell knew Israel would be violating Argentinian sovereignty by kidnapping Eichmann, by taking him out of the country. So he tried very hard to distance himself from Israel every opportunity he could. Really, at this point, saying, listen, if if the if the scrutiny and the pressure comes back on anyone, It'll be on me personally, as opposed to the country as a whole. Wow. Which that, I think is admirable. That is very admirable. Took the words right out of my mouth. Yeah, And he also knew that Argentina uh, sympathized with the Nazis and would thwart their plan if they became privy to it. All right. So they had to be careful there as well. Israeli agents began to fly into Argentina from all over the globe. Uh, no two agents coming from the same city. They rented houses and constantly changed cars in case they were being followed to make tensions even higher. Argentina was celebrating its 150th anniversary of independence from Spain. All right, so a lot of people visiting
1: tourism. up. Yeah. Yep.
0: On May 11th, 1960, Mossad agents descended on Garibaldi Street. They knew Eichmann got home from work. All right, based on their surveillance at around 7:40 p.m. Okay. They were in position by 7:35. Wow! So right right on the money. Right. After the arrival of the first two buses and st- and no sight of, of Eichmann. Operatives began to worry that maybe he would uh, deviated from his routine. Maybe, you know, was he home already? Perhaps he wasn't coming back at all. Four days had passed since they'd observed Eichmann last, and they were beginning to wonder if he changed his habits. So that was a big concern. Another bus came and went, still no Eichmann. By this time, eight o'clock, 20 minutes after they, they had ex- expected him to arrive. The men assembled at car one, the ones uh, tinkering on their engine, and the man at car two who's changing his oil were considering openly aborting the mission so as not to risk their chances of capturing him on, on another day. By 830, all right, this was the new time. They said by 830, that's going to be our deadline. If he's not here by 830, um, let's cut our losses. We'll reassemble and we'll try this at some other day. And and by all accounts, Harrell was the only one that was saying, let's wait until 830. Everybody else was ready to go. So is it just because that that hour time slot, they just didn't want to give up their position, you think? Right. They didn't want to become too suspicious. Okay. Yeah. Uh, So if he didn't arrive by 830, the plan would be called off for the day. That was the plan. At 805, another bus pulled up. And then the small, balding man wearing spectacles got off, began making his way toward his house. It was Adolf Eichmann. The Mossad agents recognized him immediately. And a wave of relief overcame them before being replaced by a rush of adrenaline that First idea, listen, this is him, this is actually happening, and the plan can can go today. Eichmann approached car one. An agent approached him and engaged him by saying, just a moment. The other operatives jumped on him. Eichmann let out a terrible yell that they described, almost like an animal caught in a trap. The other agents pulled the panic-stricken man into the second car, and they raced down Garibaldi Street. The entire operation had taken less than 10 minutes. So waiting there for over an hour, yep. the actual operation itself, 10 minutes. And it paid dividends. Right. So that was the good thing. So the first stage of Operation Finale was complete. And the Israelis had Adolf Eichmann. All right. Uh wow. I, I think I've
1: repeated myself mm-hmm. by saying wow like 10 times today, but I'm mm-hmm. I'm really at that point. Because I I gotta tell you, so you have you have this like almost like a police show mm-hmm. element, you know, that I feel like I'm in. And then I feel like then I'm back in like a law and order episode. Then I feel like I'm back in a horror film or a scary movie. And then I almost feel like I'm in a vengeance episode of some sort of uh, show or anything like that. I almost feel like at some point I'm in a superhero movie where it's like this, someone saving the day and seeking justice uh, against evil. So I,
0: this is just an incredible story. And I know we have a part two to this. Well, the part two is, you know, you would think, well, the, the goal was to capture Adolf Eichmann, which they've done, but in many respects the story is just beginning. The the really complicated portion of using the forged papers, being able to get him out of the country without suspicion, taking him back to Israel, putting him on trial, not just for that country, but by that time the entire world it will mm-hmm. have come out what it what it played out. How will the trial go? And what sort of repercussions were that will there be for you know Harrell and for Israel? based on what they did. Wow. And what will this mean in the healing process? You know, we talk about statute of limitations. And, you know, periodically you'll come across something in the newspaper, even today, Mm -hmm. where, you know, uh, a man in his 90s, it'll it'll be discovered, you know, played a role at a a concentration camp during World War II, and he's, you know, sent back to Germany to to hold trial. Um, Why are they doing this? You know, what does this mean for the people on the Mossad team? What does it mean for their families? What does it mean for really the world in this complicated and and long healing process? And I got to tell you, the the other part
1: that was kind of shocking to me is, as you're saying this, I'm taking a bunch of notes here. And one of the things you mentioned is just the operation name, operation finale. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm just curious, and this is probably just coincidence, and and this is just a big stretch for me. But there's an odd similarity between the justice of Operation Finale and seeking, you know, goodness over evil in the final solution. So I don't know if there's any connection between Operation Finale and final solution. About
0: that, Phil, I think the thing here they, you know, Nuremberg did its job, and there were a lot of big names at Nuremberg that were punished, and you know were confronted by people you know who who were were tied directly to the the pain and the terror that they inflicted during this time period. But I think it's the position that Eichmann held and the fact that he pretty much worked side by side with Hitler in constructing this entire scheme. So I think it's his position. He had to be caught. Yeah. Without him and knowing not only, it wasn't like he died in the liberation of the camps. It was that he was living out the rest of his life and never having to face the consequences to any of his actions. That's unbelievable. So next next week, I hope you guys will tune in. We're going to have part two. A lot of those questions will be answered. We'll have a lot more discussion. Until then, we'd love to know what your thoughts are on part one. Feel free to visit our new website, themissingchapterpodcast.com. Follow us on Facebook and uh, Instagram or email us directly at themissingchapterpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for joining us. Until next time, I'm Phil Schaaf. And I'm Phil Hornder. Another chapter has been added to the history textbooks.